0: This episode of The Interchange is made possible by Absa and Timu.
1: The power of men to decide what the world is going to look like, what counts and what doesn't, hasn't been disrupted in a generation, said feminist legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. Women have made undeniable advances from boardrooms to universities and sports arenas, but disparities remain, especially in the courts of law, where the bias of lawmakers, the judge, the prosecutor, the police officer and so on marginalize women, especially women in poor or rural contexts and women who are part of communities, the community of color. But imagine if... All legislation that affects women was drafted by women exclusively. Additionally, all judges that presided over cases where women are victims, you know, were female judges. To discuss this very interesting topic, I have an all-female panel of brilliant debaters and scholars, Anam Azar, Tanya Kaseke, Belam Kabela and Nolutando Honono. And to give us the expert opinion for this episode, I have CEO Dimot khale who is a legal scholar, a social entrepreneur, a fervent activist and supporter of women's rights. Dimo, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Thank you so much <laughs> for having
2: me. I'm great. I'm great. Thank you. You're well.
1: Came a long way uh, to be part of this debate. We really wanted uh, you specifically for this debate. What are your initial thoughts when you, you you think about the motion?
2: So I think, I mean, on the one hand, I was very afraid when I saw it because I was like, you know, there's this assumption that, all women are for women, and that could be dangerous. Mm. So, I'm very interested to see um, the debate unfold and how they balance um, the practicality of what can happen right now and tomorrow versus just how institutionalized mm. this matter is. And it's, mm. it's, it goes way, way back centuries of oppression, and it's about unrooting that and dealing with that systemic oppression as opposed to just dealing with the symptoms of mm. what has become of that. Definitely. I think our debate is a very hard
1: task today. But before we get into the debate, let's do a quick rundown of the rules. We're using the British parliamentary format. We have four speakers, two on each side. The first two are prop and the last two are op. In terms of speaking order, prop one is going to speak first and op two is going to speak last. Our speakers have four minutes to deliver their case. After the first minute and before the final minute, they will have to allow for points of information from the opposing team. Cool. Let's get this debate rolling. Anam, over to you.
3: Earlier this year, 25 out of 35 members of the Senate of Alabama voted in favor of very stringent anti-abortion laws. All 25 of these members were white men. Only two men in the Senate voted against these laws. The strategic value of this example is threefold. Firstly, it shows that any kind of legislation pertaining to women can have very detrimental effects if not implemented correctly. Number two, it shows that often when laws are passed by men, they are not passed in a holistic manner or they are not passed specifically looking at the best interests of women. But number three, it shows that currently we have 36 percent of women holding permanent Positions as judges in South Africa. But this isn't enough because, even in an instance in which we have some representation of women, if these women are constantly outvoted by men, then we don't get the kind of policies and the kind of laws that will actually bring about some kind of positive change for women. Two points of uh, two points of positive matter that I bring you. Firstly, the point of how women are in the best position to understand issues pertaining to women, but secondly, how this means that we get better transformation within our courts. On the first point, we say that women are in the best position to understand issues pertaining to women because they are part of the experience that women experience, right? So we think that because women have lived through what the laws... Um, through, through laws and experiences that women in South Africa have lived through, we think that they're in the best position to make these kinds of laws. We think that there are often laws that are not passed or laws that are passed incorrectly because people are not aware of the plight of women, right? So for example, issues surrounding domestic violence and maintenance were passed very late, often because there weren't women present in the courts to pass these kinds of laws or to bring up these kinds of issues. And we think, therefore, it is fair to believe that having more woman representation within our courts means that we're going to get better understanding of women's issues, but it means then that we get laws that are actually going to pass, that are going to be passed that will actually benefit these women, right? We think that secondly, often men have an A. actual incentive to uphold very problematic patriarchal structures right and we think because men are the beneficiaries of patriarchy we think that they then have some kind of an interest in upholding these structures so a very extreme example would be for example in Saudi Arabia in which very progressive laws surrounding women aren't being passed because there are men that occupy all spaces of the judiciary that then pass laws that entrench patriarchy right and we think here is an example of how because men Men do have an active interest in upholding these laws often when it is them who is in the in the position to be making these laws they will pass laws that will often be incredibly oppressive towards women right we saw we saw how even in apartheid south africa having like like an entirely white judiciary meant that laws were being passed that were only in favor of white people but actually that were in favor of a structure that meant the white people were at a, in a position of privilege What we then say is we say that even if we look at issues in which women are victims in the court, we think that we would still rather have women be in a position of being the judges or women be in the decision-making process, right? Why is this? We think often men just aren't credible, right? So if you look, for example, at the Brat Kavanaugh case, you see how often men are even not only have an interest in upholding patriarchal structures, but often hold very problematic narratives because they've been conditionalized in a patriarchal world, right? And so we think often the decisions that they make make aren't even credible. But secondly, we think that often they create an environment in which the victim is faced with extreme hostility, right? So if you look, for example, at the Cheryl Zandi trial, even, where men within the court were incredibly aggressive towards Cheryl Zandi and were incredibly problematic in the way in which that court was conducted. Anam, um, unfortunately, your time is up. We're going to have to move on to the
1: opposition speaker one, Bella here here.
4: All right. I think what Anam's speech basically concludes is that there is a need for women to participate in legislature and participate in justice. It concludes that we need more women um, speaking out in this issue. It doesn't conclude why it exclusively has to be women, because the problem that Anam highlights is that men tend to be incredibly hostile in the justice system and when creating laws because they don't engage with women, don't know those experiences and don't choose to learn about those experience or of the very least accumulate knowledge to make them make those decisions more clear and we tell you when you isolating them from participating and seeing how those laws impact people how to make those laws and how to see the ramification of those laws you make that significantly worse because when men start to choose to participate in issues of women in issues of family and so forth because they don't gain that experience it makes them even more hostile more unable to adjust to specific situations Situations and more unwilling to make sacrifices That benefit women specifically Bella. What we think is A social contract is something that's important Because it governs every person In a state Not just men and women And men will be presiding over cases That have women involved Will be making laws that do include women Such as water, shelter Everything that affects women We don't want them to be seeing women and men As separate entities And choose when to to get involved and one when not to get involved. They should want to treat women as a special kind and consider their experiences when making those kind of decisions instead of seeing them as an isolated and alien that they're not involved in. That's the problem we see in Alam's case ultimately. Because when you give us examples such as like the abortion laws, we tell you the abortion laws were purely because men didn't understand what a body is and what that kind of effect has on women. They didn't want to get involved even when they were criticized for Please. those kind of things. And you make the situation significantly more hostile when you say they actively should never be involved in those situations, actively shouldn't want to speak about that. So what I'll be talking about ultimately is what happens when you isolate men from the justice system specifically when we talk about pertaining to cases that involve women, uh, specifically women. And what happens when you isolate them from like legislature for things like um women issues and so forth, right? Firstly, I think you create that narratives of saying there are women issues, right? They exclusively are women issues. You guys don't know. You guys should not involve yourself. And what the problem with that narrative is, is twofold. One, you create a, like a situation where men never take responsibilities for things that go wrong when it comes to women, right? They don't say the abortion law is wrong. We as men participated in that. And what is our involvement in solving those consequences? In solving those ramifications right? You make them exclude themselves From taking responsibilities In fighting the patriarchy Because the patriarchy is not just a female orientated fight But also um, also male Secondly, you make them feel That they cannot and ever Learn from women experiences And make correct decisions So even if we have men Who are allies to female issues You make them scared to participate In those issues And be involved in in terms of their own perspective What makes it specifically harmful When we're talking about family law Where men are involved in those situations The outcomes don't only affect women But affect families that have men in it And we want outcomes that Protect women and you want men to get Involved in wanting that protection And in wanting that situation In which they can be better That's something that's specifically problematic When we're talking about the justice system and Family law. Secondly, we think That women issues tend to be about Protection and redress, recognizing That there's a problem and Men are part of that problem When you isolate them from decisions They get to take the back seats. when they say It's not our fault, we shouldn't be Involved and we definitely are not the sole cause of all these issues. Bella, thank you so much.
1: Four minutes on the dots. We're moving on to our proposition speaker one who's going to extend the proposition case. Tanya here here. The essential problem with the case coming from the opposition
0: bench is what they're doing is they're defending status quo without necessarily telling you why bella speaks to you for four minutes about why we shouldn't exclude men from this process because necessarily what you're going to do is you're not going to achieve actual justice for women and men are going to be excluded from the process of accounting for the things they've done wrong the problem with that then becomes is that you're doing this at the expense of women if we tell you that here we have a solution that works and they don't necessarily show us how the harms that they necessarily point out are then going to like actually manifest or actually occur in the society we need to discuss but moreover we don't think that that they actually deal with the things Anam tells you in her first speech and we think that that's necessarily a problem but there needs to be a wider discussion then about what the actual effects of this are and how they're going to manifest in society because we think even at the point at which you're going to be actively excluding men from like the justice system and from actually enforcing legislature you necessitate the fact that that's a process that women need to participate in you're going to be able to create a demand for women in that industry so if it means that you're going to have a bunch of court cases where the women are victims You necessitate the fact that female judges need to be involved in the South African justice system, which doesn't necessarily occur in today's in today's status quo, specifically because those women aren't in demand and people think that their male counterparts are better. But even if that wasn't an actual benefit, what else do we get from them? So the first thing Bella sort of tells us is that, like, you can't have men not being involved in this process because then what happens is that those men can't account for those situations and that they necessarily don't want to understand women's issues. And you create this narrative of women's issues and men's issues. What we need to do is be realistic. We think that anyway, there are always going to be women's issues and men's issues. What we then at least need to do is figure out how best do we solve women's issues and why are women better to do this? Because at no point does she necessarily then tell us that firstly, this is mutually exclusive of being able to tell men that, look, you've done wrong, you've messed up, you're not going to be able to fix that. But secondly, we don't think at any point does she then necessarily tell us women are not predisposed to actually want to do better for those women in that situation and they're not going to be able to effectively deal with it i
4: think the assumption is also that you think women are exactly the same you do not prove to us that women will be making better decisions. women don't need to be
0: exactly the same but what we need to then tell you here is that if we live in a society where men have already been given the opportunity to actually be able to do something about the situations women are in we don't think we're going to be doing any harm by putting women in situations where they aren't exactly the same given the fact that at least in the situation where you do succeed we still get more benefits than you do on your side of the house so then the second thing then that we get here is that fighting the patriarchy is a process that then men need to necessarily be involved in we don't think we stop men from being involved in fighting the patriarchy we think we just give women the upper hand in that situation if substantive equality then is going to ensure that we have to have women exclusively doing this and that means that women will eventually be equal because they were more disadvantaged in the first place we think that this then becomes more vulnerable but there also needs to be a discussion then about the incentive that like these people have to uphold the patriarchy and that how that incentive inherently doesn't exist for women because they are women and that's something we don't think that they deal with on their side of the house so if you're going to have women in these situations actually being empowered but secondly the second benefit that you then have is you necessitate the involvement of women and you even force women to participate in those in those situations we think that you're necessarily better for the society the question that we then need to ask then is which side actually advocates for an ever dynamic and ever developing justice system we think that if that side is going to be proposition then proposition
1: should take the debate. Thank you so much for that speech, Tanya I'm going to hand over to our final speaker for the debate, Nolutando here here
5: couple of issues that proposition needs to deal with here. Firstly, I think proposition needs to do the work to show why it is that there's a specific cause that creates the conversation about women's issues to begin with. The reason why we have a discussion about women's issues is quite simply because patriarchy has placed itself in a position where it oppresses women. But more importantly, that patriarchy has its own safeguarding spaces. A lot of those safeguarding spaces are men. Those safeguarding spaces are men who place women in a position where they have to uphold patriarchy in order for them to go up specifically. Ladders. The way in which you deal with this is to ensure that at the point at which they do this, they have some mechanism by which we have to hold them accountable and hold them responsible. When they have specific um, places where they make decisions and those decisions can be called out and they can be called out for being part of making those specific decisions, you're able to ensure that there is a dialogue and a discussion around the issues that they cause for women. But more importantly, why it is that that specific culpability of theirs requires them to take that level. of responsibility. When you remove men from being able to do this, what you're essentially doing is to say, women have to make decisions about redress on issues of women that men have caused without necessarily allowing those um, men to take responsibility. What then this means is that at the point where redress has to happen, it becomes the responsibility of women who were not the cause of the issues of women to begin with. And you don't have the ability to make men accountable for what they've caused for women specifically in these instances. There's a Massive problem solution gap on this instance when you start to talk about the case that we get from Anam and Tanya. Anam and Tanya need to do the work here to be able to show us why it is that redress in this particular specific, specific instance or even protection of women, as Bella has already shown, ought to be the responsibility of women when the actual harm to women comes in the form of men. Secondary to this, though, they argue that women don't have an incentive to uphold patriarchy couple of issues with this. A lot of the spaces that we find ourselves in, specifically when we talk about the legislature, is one that is party-partisan-specific. This means that in order for women to be able to make specific outcomes happen within those particular spaces, they have to be within caucuses that allow them to be able to make these things happen. The reason why the legislature cannot be a situa- cannot work out this way to be the best for women is that a lot of the time, specific women in those spaces have to uphold specific narratives in order for those caucuses to be able to move their ideas and understandings forward. This means two things. One, Men tend to be part of the way in which those ideas are informed. Two, they become part of the way in which those ideas are agreed upon. This means the way in which you get those ideas to work out is when you get them to buy into an understanding of certain things. That requires an active discussion or an active dialogue amongst when men and women in those spaces so that those caucuses can adopt feminist ideals and adopt the understanding of those women within those spaces and pass them forward. If you understand how the legislature works, you would then have to be able to do the work to show why that wouldn't accrue in
3: those instances, one of you. Okay, so the first flaw in your example is that you're, you are only arguing in a status quo in which that legislature is mainly dominated by men. If we remove men from the equation altogether, then we don't have to consider... Yeah, removing men altogether then and um, essentially places
5: you in a position where you have now to deal with a pushback from those men a lot of the time who are in their majority to begin with. Even in the instance where you ought to say you're going to remove them from issues that have to do with women, you can't remove them from issues that have to do with general society, which is where you're most likely wanting to have the greatest impact to begin with. Because those two become issues that fundamentally deal with women specifically. At the point where you're unable to show how it is that the exclusion of men specifically becomes... One, that is strategic for women, firstly But secondly, that allows women to be able to fully exist within these spaces In such a way that they can forward- like some sort of mobility for the um, women's cause Even in instances where issues are not necessarily Directly involving women only You cannot possibly show Why it, it would be one Justified to place us in a position where women Have to now deal with that kind of pushback In instances where it's not about just women But, but my, two, in
1: instances where they, Why it is that men ought to be removed From the responsibility that they have To deal with unfortunately those issues Your time is up Thank you so much, that was an incredible debate Let's go into our post-discussion So a couple of views were spilling out, I think, that are very important for us to discuss before we get into our our expert opinion, but also into the broader issue, especially at a a personal lens. Um, I think I'm going to start with our proposition. Um, You know, Anam, you you had a couple of things that I'm sure you wish you could have said if you could right now. Well, you, you can right now. You know, what would you say?
3: So our constitution supports the process of transformation and at its core it supports principles such as equality the protection of dignity uh, justice and so if our courts are at the forefront of the fight against inequality and injustice, then they ought to be representative of the people who they're supporting. And in issues pertaining to women, they mm-hmm. have to be representative of women. We don't think that every woman will understand every issue, but every woman is part of the female experience and every woman is still aware of issues that surround women. And probably and so better think, suited to, to make exactly, judgments exactly. on
1: women's issues. And, and, you know, from an opposition point of view, you know, if you, if you could, you know, rebut that, what would you say?
5: Look, I mean, it's fair to ask that women be represented or women have representation in spaces such as the legislature and the judiciary. However, I think there's a very important discussion to be had about where we allow men to be able to remove themselves from taking responsibility from a lot of things. So... I've already argued that a lot of what is the cause of us to have those kind of responsive mechanisms in the judiciary as well as in the legislature is because there's been cause for women to have to respond. At the point where that response is purely the responsibility of women and men don't have an active interaction within those spaces, we remove them from taking responsibility, and that's an integral part of being able to ensure that that regress and protection happens in the way in which. But then it quickly, how do
1: women? we hasten um, political change? Because if you look at the majority of political women's conferences, usually what women are calling for is uh, some kind of ratification of laws. And you have a court system that's been around for centuries that's still not progressed to a point where it can ban discrimination on on uh, on women at all levels whether it be healthcare whether it be um on sex issues rape you have laws that don't even explicitly ban incest or um they don't make provision for women to have access to uh, free abortions for instance so at a point at which you have to deal with a, a legal system that isn't doing that um centuries later at what point do we then stop um you know, giving men the benefit of the doubt and really take um, take the reins from there I think then
0: our response to that accountability argument is just to say that, like you've said, men have been involved within the justice system and in courts for centuries it hasn't brought them to responsibility what's going to like all of a sudden change that they're going to want to account for that now, so I think it can't continue to happen at the expense of women that we expect men to account and we expect men to want to transform. At some point, women are going to need to take the matter into their own hands, even if it's principally unjust something needs to occur to stop women from continuing to suffer.
1: I'm just a little bit concerned because I don't know if what needs to occur necessarily is isolating men from the justice system and I think this is where I'm going to bring in our expert Sia Dimo who is a a legal scholar but also a fervent activist and a supporter of women's rights. In your opinion what needs to happen based on everything that's been said?
2: The long version of the short version. <laughs> Completely up to you. Um, okay. Thank you so much, firstly, for having me here. Um, I think it's quite an interesting debate, which can happen on two levels, right? The first is a very surface level um Yeah, first is a surface-level interaction and the second is a more institutionalized Mm. recognition of the fact that this is not just about treating symptoms but actually the root cause of what's happening, right? Mm. Um, So my interpretation of the motion, firstly, is that, I mean, we need to understand there's two parts of the motion. On the one hand, we're talking about um, lawmakers and on the other hand, we're talking about the interpreters of the law. Mm. And in my understanding, I mean, there's only... So much that to Say for example we had an all-woman bench There's only mm. so much um, That a progressive A progressive bench Essentially can be Pro-woman um, In interpreting um, an essentially anti-woman law mm. For example I actually want to make An example about a case um, That happened while I was at the constitutional court It's a mm. law versus the state It's a 2017 case Where Very briefly, the facts were along the lines of this man brutally raped this woman and, like, just physically. Mm brutalized her mm. and the officer filling out the charge sheet yeah. um, charged her according charged um, the rapist sorry according to section 51-1 as opposed to 51-2 of the criminal law amendment act and what that meant was that there was a difference in um, the limitations of the maximum sentence that could be imposed and because of that flaw that mistake that the police officer had made the Constitutional Court essentially had to reverse a life sentence to, uh, I think, a ten or fifteen-year sentence, and there was even if we had an all-woman bench, there's mm. only so much that the all-woman mm. bench could have done because mm-hmm. the law was limiting, right? And so I think so the bigger framework. Exactly. So look at, yeah. in my opinion, what, what we're trying to do here is address symptoms of an mm. institutional problem. So even if we Deep. had an all-woman bench, mm-hmm. even if we had just all-woman lawmakers, we have to understand the raw material, mm. basically what, what, where they come from, the, mm. the law, the legal system that produces this type mm. of woman and how it is inherently biased towards men, towards mm. um, white people, towards whoever mm. the dominant um, people in society are. And mm. so, it it it. I guess it's it's not essentially too helpful to do that. But even if we were to assume essentially that the women could make up their own laws if they are on the bench, yeah. um, I think the problem we go into then could be that of essentializing, right? So we are now, um, I, I guess, a slippery slope of some sort because now we are trying to make womanhood. One thing, which it cannot be, right? Um It's not a fixed singular identity, essentially. And if you consider in the in South Africa, mm. the, who who is that woman that's actually going to be speaking on behalf of the other woman? She's going to be white. She's going to be liberal. She's going to be middle yeah. class. Chances are, so right? So, propping up people who are and, already in
1: these spaces, who already. Benefiting from some kind of privilege
2: Exactly and if you look at a corporate setting Which may not be related to this I mean you have a type of woman who thinks She is the man because she has to Essentially live and compete with men And is that the kind of woman you want Speaking on behalf of Sure. The rest of women, right, so that essentializing it and having this gener- generalized um, account of what it is to be woman essentially negates the differences mm-hmm. between women and is not necessarily helpful mm. so um, and that 's where I think intersectionality would come in yeah um, and intersectionality is about recognizing that oppression is is not necessarily symmetrical i think we 've all been in a situation where a white. Uh, gay man thinks you know oh I have a struggle because I'm gay and wants to equate that to being a black woman and you're just like but like it's not it's, a different. Pres- <laughs> it's not a <laughs> Olympics <laughs> but it's not yeah. the same it's literally not the same um, and that's where um, critical race feminism would come in mm-hmm. where they've Recognize. I mean, this is a whole branch of academia where they've recognized that uh, feminist jurisprudence does not adequately address uh, racial elements and sexism. But at the same time, critical race theory just lacks that mm-hmm. addressing of gender and feminism and all of that. Mm-hmm. And what I like about critical race feminism, I actually made points about mm-hmm. that, is that a, it does not offer solutions. So it's not about, yes, let's have an all-woman bench, let's have all-woman legislators, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it doesn't tell us that there aren't any solutions and it opens up a critical debate and serious questions that need need to challenge the values and ethos Mm. of the legal community in their approach to gender. Mm. And it illustrates essentially the effect of having, I think our law is very conservative, Mm. firstly, and we we have this delusion that law is separate from politics. And by maintaining that, the legal positivists Mm. thinking that, okay, cool, let us… Separate law from mm. politics What you do is perpetuate this idea That law is neutral And in this case um, Denying that there is a bias in the law Essentially perpetuates the dominant bias mm. Right So um, Neutrality essentially normalizes the status quo And mm. in situations where the status quo In the context of this debate, is the oppression of women and material inequality experienced by women, then neutrality will have a sexist consequence, essentially. Mm. And um, so, this liberal legalist emphasis on universal and abstract theories as law as apolitical, objective, results in gender neutral laws. And Mm. what that does is challenge surface area, uh, surface um, level. Oppression against yeah. women. So if there's something overtly sexist, then laws can address that. But then we don't address the systemic yeah, um, institutional norms exactly. And by failing to address those, essentially, you're perpetuating them at some point. And I want to pause you there, actually, yes, because
1: ex- I mean, you've made a couple of interesting points. Uh, I, I think. The biggest one that I want us to, to just dissect as a as a panel is the issue of the framework um, that you spoke about initially, that, you know, even if we have an all-female bench, to the extent that a law is gender neutral, for instance, or a law doesn't make provision for certain, um, um, you know, things to be maneuvered or navigated specifically where they have to do with women's issues, then we have to go back to the issue of at a, you know, at a legislative level, looking at the entire legal system, looking at police, looking at um, literally when you walk into the police station to report rape, what happens at that point and all of that proceeding. The day that you enter a courtroom and potentially face discrimination there, how do we address issues that are prevalent everywhere else, especially if we were, for example, to accept the prop argument and, and have all women benches but not change anything else um, in policing, for instance, or in, in, in policy making and legislation? How do we reconfigure society as a whole?
2: Hmm.
1: tough <laughs>
0: Tanya. Um, I think specifically when it comes to reconfiguring society as a whole, if we can all concede that we live in a society where the law is going to sort of impact the way we function in our daily lives and just how we do everything societally. As soon as you have women in that position of power, it becomes a lot easier for us to then recognize the fact that things like policing are inherently discriminatory towards women at the point at which those women are in those situations where they're reporting cases of rape. But even in the situation where nothing necessarily changes with the wider bracket of society, I think it's not necessarily the job of those lawmakers then to be able to account for everything else in society. So it's merely
1: saying that them being in that position benefits women
0: at that level. level, And I think that's a lot more valuable than whatever we have in status quo.
1: What about all the research that says that uh, gender diversity produces better political outcomes, specifically in democracy? And, you know, we, we support those kind of statistics when it's women that we want at the table. Now we're saying take men, away from the table, what happens to all of those views about diversity?
2: I think it goes back to the idea that, to the extent that we're still functioning within a framework that um, favors patriarchy or that favors um, white supremacy, then it doesn't really matter who's at the table um, yeah I, I'd say yeah I also think it's just power relations have to yeah, be changed yeah. a
0: discussion about like substantive equality in mm. that regard is necessary because even if we're going to say we want to have a diverse table mm. in South Africa for example you can never say you have a diverse table if you have like 50% mm. people of colour and 50% white people because it was essentially easier for those people to get into that position so if it means and you the have leverage to, they have yeah if it means Means you have to take preference for women to sit at that table because you know it would have been harder to, for them to sit at that table in the first place. So it's almost like gender then,
1: balance requires like a reconfiguration of yeah. gender dynamics and power yeah. and gender relations all mm. before any kind of inclusion of the other gender can make any substantive difference in the way that things are done. Nolotando, well, what's your personal opinion before I come back to Anam?
5: <laughs> I think beyond the institutional understanding of what ought to happen in a courtroom or ought to happen in um the legislature, there's a massive political discussion that needs to happen as well. Because the reality of the situation is that a lot of the discussions or like decisions that people take within the legislative framework is based purely on the understanding of one, their political parties and how they ally themselves with that to the caucuses that they fall within to in those political parties and what the views of that are. And a lot of the time, the truth is that, um, politically in order for one to be able to sort of like climb up the ladder they need to make certain compromises and a lot of the compromises that women make in political spaces aren't compromises that um, are superficial in nature they're compromises that require them to take a back seat on either their feminist understanding of things or ones that push them to a position where they have to push certain narratives so the reality of the situation is that it's all good and well to have the conversation about whether or not we want women in the legislature to take up the greater bulk of the space or whether or not we want women to be solely um, responsible for women issues in those instances. But the reality of the situation is that at the point where that does happen and the point where that discussion takes place, women are unlikely to get to a point where they have a singular understanding of what it means to be a woman, what it means to progress women within that space, because what informs those understandings is very specific to every individual woman that is going to be sitting in those seatings, trying to figure out what it is that women ought to look like mm. within that framework.
1: Anam? Okay. Sorry, Sadim, I'll let you close. Okay, um, but just quickly, Anam, and then we're going to go to Tanya.
3: So um, I think what I mainly want to say is that I definitely do concede that like, the female experience is not monolithic, right? Mm. But I don't necessarily think that being in a position of like being a lawmaker or like the judiciary or anything should have a monolithic view. But I do think it needs to have the interests of women at heart. And so like not having a panel agree on one thing because there's different versions of feminism isn't a problem, but it's a problem when you have men entering a conversation with the agenda of perpetuating patriarchy or just entering a conversation from a place of ignorance, because then that ignorance is also harmful. So I definitely th- don't, I definitely think that there is more work to be done than to just have a female only panel, or mm. there's definitely limitations that come from having only women discussing women's issues, right? Like I don't mm. think that can solve mm. everything, but I do think that having men entering conversations that pertain to women, in my opinion, has very little benefit because in every instance in which men have been the main stakeholders in these conversations, it has meant that we hardly ever get a progressive conversation around feminism, which is why, like, even if we concede that there's different versions of feminism, I would still never make a man the head of feminism or the decision maker in feminism. And so I think it's good that we have like a diversity of ideas within feminism, but I still think with that being said, one thing we can all agree on is that men very, very seldomly hold the interests of women or will very seldomly represent any kind of view of feminism. And while other women may also have their limitations, men have far more limitations when it comes to that. <laughs> Tanya.
0: I think for me, the issue at its core is specifically if we're talking about issues that pertain to and affect women, why do men feel entitled to have a spot in that conversation and to have a seat at that table? Because if it's not going to affect you and it's not an experience you go through and you know specifically that that's an issue that you yourself have caused, you shouldn't necessarily feel entitled to have to play a role in that situation because at that point, I think you take away the agency from women to be able to say that these are issues that have been put upon us that we didn't want to have, but now we're going to be in situations where we're going to be able to do something about that. And, I think for some women, even if men are going to be involved in the process of drafting legislature, and it's not an exclusive process, that can be something that's necessarily oppressive within and of itself. That you have men coming into the space and telling you how to fix the problems mm. that they necessarily created. Mm. At which point do you say that you can trust men to be able to go into that space when they were the fo- when they were the problem in the first place and actually want to do good for you? Because they don't have the incentive to do so. But as a woman, regardless of where you come from, you are more likely to actually want to see women succeed.
1: So I'm going to hand it over to you to close it for us. I think we've had um, very powerful views that have even thrown into flux the whole idea of uh, catalyzing and encouraging male champions of uh, female issues um, and trying to create spaces where men... Uh, whether in the home context or in the boardroom or in the courtroom or in the workplace, can begin to be part of a broader conversation about how uh, we empower women and how we eradicate discrimination against women. We've had views that seem, you know, radical on the surface, but that truly, you know, force us to concede to the fact that, you know, these are women's issues and these are also caused by men. Mm. And uh, where does that leave us?
2: I think I think a big discomfort in not just in the debate, but in the general conversation that's happening in society for me is how, again, we talk about men as though we are talking about an individual, you know. So when we talk about feminism and when we talk about trying to advance the cause for women, it's not necessarily just being anti men who are sexist. It's essentially the system of patriarchy, right? Um Mm. Actually, I like to draw parallels between, you know, gender um, discrimination and and racial discrimination. And Joel Medeiri makes this um, argument where he says, you know, when we insist that law is not political, for example, we are denying – we're actually being hurtful. We are being um, unhelpful and detrimental to the interest of the oppressed because law in and of itself is this um, system that has – well, even where we inherited our law, right? It's inherently white. It's inherently male, and all of that. And he makes examples of, for example, the 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 death penalty case, right? It's mm-hmm. versus it was about dignity. Hey, hey, yeah, no, the right to dignity. But by refusing to have that conversation about the fact that the people who face the death penalty were poor and they were black, and insisting that that's a political issue, what you are doing is shying away from a conversation that has the potential to essentially. T- transform the law. So the law is a tool, irrespective of who sits at the bench, who Mm. sits in parliament, it's still a tool. And to Mm. the extent that it is rooted in the oppression of women and the oppression of black people, then it it doesn't really matter who's facilitating it, Mm. right? And um, so I, I think law and how it's framed, legal culture in South Africa has been very conservative, which is unhelpful. And there's this view, I mean, we were all taught in law school about the reasonable person who is, I mean, It wasn't explicitly said, but it's essentially a white male, right? (laughs) So when you hold this view that um, this law that is essentially rooted in white maleness and Western colonial perspective can be neutral, can be pure, can be reasonable, then and you insist on a neutral interpretation of the law, what Mm. you're doing is insisting on an uh, oppressive Mm. interpretation of the law. Mm. And so um, I, I think... Yes, it is important to recognize that, you know, women representation is important. We're by no means saying that women shouldn't have a seat at the table. Women shouldn't weigh in on these conversations. But I think we're setting ourselves up if we're just going to try to mm-hmm. um, encourage that surface level debate. And we're not actually interrogating this tool, this instrument that we are tasking women to use in order to facilitate the change that we're saying we want to see. Um, and hence, I said it's a very tough debate, you know, on the one hand mm. it's it it is important that we have practical steps that we can start doing tomorrow or right now, but um, I think it's very important to start having conversations, including men in mm. conversations, but having them on a much bigger level and including different actors and different parties mm. in 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 the conversation and again, we don't want to have a situation of essentialism where there is a particular woman who's um, entrusted with advocating for the rest of the woman or assuming that all women are for women or for the empowerment of women and just, yeah, realizing the the differences and Mm. the nuances in being a woman but also the fact that... um, there's different layers of oppression as well. Mm. So being a black woman and being a black disabled woman or being a black disabled lesbian woman is mm. very different mm. from being a white woman. And I, th- I think for me, the the issue is much bigger than just let's have an all-woman bench and therefore women will be covered. All the goals mm. will be right, you know?
1: Um, I mean, powerful. Yeah. I think a perfect summary to everything that's been said um, is that if the law itself um was was written with the interests of the most vulnerable in society then it wouldn't even matter that much who would be facilitating um the tool exactly. as you've put it and so there's a deeper interrogation that needs to happen but on the surface because you know some issues take centuries to fix I think it's worth asking ourselves as women if we were in court for an issue like equal pay or sexual harassment or rape, would we want to present to a male or a female? That was The Interchange Episode 8. I hope that you enjoyed it. Do share your opinions. Also share the podcast with some strong women for some strong opinions. We definitely want to know what you were sitting at home and thinking.
0: This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by EPSA and Simu, amplifying the voices of young people. The Interchange,
4: seeing Africa through a youthful lens.